Welcome friends, this is James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Today is the 5th of February 2014 and today we are joined on the line once again by our old friend Mimi Al-Laham, better known as Syrian Girl, at Partisan Girl on Twitter and Syrian Girl Partisan on YouTube. And uh, both of those links to both of those accounts will be in the show notes for this interview in case you miss them. And uh, well, there's a lot going on in the in the, uh, the the developing emerging narrative of Syria and the peace process. And for those who haven't been following along at home, the Geneva II Middle East Peace Conference, the UN-sponsored attempt at some sort of peace process in Syria, has, uh, well, the first round of negotiations drew to a close last week. And even the main UN uh, broker, uh, the Arab League Joint Special Representative Lakhtar Brahimi, has admitted that there was no progress to speak of during these negotiations. Basically, the only progress that was made is some tentative agreement to, for, on both sides to allow uh, World Food Program aid access to various parts of the country, including the old city of Homs, but really nothing whatsoever to speak of in terms of actual progress with these talks. And we are looking forward to perhaps another round of fruitless negotiations starting on the 10th of February, but I don't want to to uh, to pre pre uh, pre run in front of our guest here. So, um, Syrian Girl, thank you so much for joining us today, and why don't you tell us a little bit from your own perspective about this Geneva II conference and what it has or hasn't accomplished so far? Well, what's interesting to hear from uh, Brahimi and the U.S. that, you know, things haven't worked out as planned in Geneva too, um, because the Syrians themselves are actually saying, oh, well, you know, in fact, it's been uh, not, not too bad as a start. Um, they're taking a more positive tone about the outcome of negotiations. Um, and I guess you could read into it in one sense that uh, when the U.S. State Department is talking about negotiations not going so well or stalling, perhaps they mean that it's not going well for the interests of the U.S. State Department rather than the interests of Syria. Um, it's It seems that it's in Syria's interest for the war to be over, but not necessarily in the U.S. or in NATO's interest for the war to come to a close. Because, of course... Having a weakened and divided Syria is 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 in going to benefit Israel in the region. Um, so the Syrians have actually been been talking about um, having a power sharing deal with the U.S. backed and Saudi backed opposition, such that they would take some ministerial positions in a transitional government. However, they would have to accept this under the framework of the current constitution and accepting Assad as the head of that uh, transitional government until such time as elections are held. And this is, in fact, uh, what the U.S. would say is a stalling point, and, you know, including perhaps not as, as, as much as the U.S. wouldn't like to see this happen, but the opposition, of course, wouldn't like to see this happen. And they, this is the reason why they keep referring back to Geneva 1 and accepting the terms of Geneva 1, because um, the transitional government uh, in Geneva 1, you know, I, I think that there's this potholes in that communique whereby they can um, remove Assad from power uh, before an election is held and install a puppet regime directly. Uh, and as a matter of fact, also... Uh, change Syria's constitution through 
Geneva rather than through a referendum or, or through the decision of the Syrian people. Uh, and as we saw um, in w- with Iraq's new constitution, a lot of things were added to that constitution that weakened Iraq as as a as a solid state. You know, Iraq became federalized. Now, you see, it's fascinating to me that you have that uh, that that Syrian perspective that that these talks have not been a total failure because basically every single account that I've read has used that word. It's been a failure. There's been no progress. Even um, Iranian state TV, press TV has talked about it being a, a failure. Um, with Iranian state representatives um, basically saying that. So it, it is interesting to hear that other perspective. But you bring up, I think, the important point about this, which is that it boggles my mind that Syria is even sitting down at the table with this U.S.-backed, Saudi-backed, Israeli-backed opposition terrorist force, because it has always been one of the ground rules, the ground base of any negotiation with these terrorists, that they won't uh, accept anything other than a change in government, a change in uh, Assad going out. And uh, that seems to be a, a ridiculous place for for the Syrian people to be starting um, negotiations from. I I don't understand what Syria is hoping to get out of this peace process. Well, I I think that's a very, very good point. Um, For me, I'm not a diplomat. So for me, I don't like to give an inch of what I believe is rightfully Syrian, is, is, is our right. So when I see, you know, negotiations with basically the same people that have destroyed us for the last three years it's painful but at the same time i think there are things that the syrian government hope to get out of this number one would be the press the media that comes out of it um the the positive propaganda that can come out of it because what geneva 2 has revealed is how weak the hand of the Syrian National Coalition and its backers are. Because in fact, uh, it's clear now that they don't really control the majority of the insurgents on the ground. And the only negotiating points they can make are in very specific regions, such as Homs, which is why the only uh, deal that was struck was in Homs. But at the same time, uh, you know, nobody spoke about the sieges that the rebels are imposing against the people of Aleppo. So, uh, and, you know, the, the sieges that the rebels are pushing onto uh, regions of Aleppo, such as Zahra, are, in fact, they come into 40,000 people who are under siege. So much, much larger than those under siege in Homs. But you don't get to hear about that in, in the press. So um, it's basically exposed to the Syrian people as well how... Uh, this Syrian National Coalition, it doesn't represent anything. Um, Another thing that they can get out of it is if they can achieve some kind of middle ground, not so much in the middle, but just give safe face for certain uh, interests, such as the United States, such as the Syrian National Coalition, then perhaps they can prevent the prolonging of this war because otherwise the only solution is um, a fight to the death. And at this point, frankly speaking, that wouldn't necessarily, uh, you know, this is going to, at this point, if things go as they are now, Syria and its army are going to be victorious. So they can potentially keep it going to the end, but this is going to be to the detriment 
of uh, Syria and its economy and the army and everything. So if they can get them to step back from their demands and say something more realistic and uh, concede to at least some power sharing and allowing the Syrian people to decide who their president will be, then then perhaps, uh, you know, this war can be finished much sooner. Well, I do, I do see it from the, the diplomatic point of view that obviously if there is some sort of way of even getting some sort of PR out of this that, that shows that uh, Syria is serious about ending this, that that is to the, to the benefit of, of the, the Syrian people. But I, I'm highly dubious. I mean, I, I've even been watching some of the Fox News propaganda. That's right, folks. I, I roll up my sleeves and do the dirty work so you don't have to. But I've even been watching some of that with John Bolton and others decrying, you know, Assad and saying that, again, you know, it's all you know, obstinance on the Syrian government's part that's holding back these negotiations. So this kind of PR can very easily be flipped around and spun for people who aren't paying attention, the, the kind of mindless zombies who only look at the headlines. And, and they might believe that, again, oh, it's this Assad that's... that's that's being the uh, the one who's dragging his heels on all this. So unfortunately, that can backfire in a big way. And I'm just uh, concerned about how this is really going to play out. And uh, as I understand, the uh, the second round of negotiations is set for the 10th of February. Is that right? Yeah, I understand there's a week in between the end of the first round and then the second round. So what um, uh, what can we expect from this point? Is there a basis to continue these negotiations? Or, I mean, w- what what sort of um, uh, starting point are we looking at for the second round? Well, I think what the U.S. hopes to gain um, and, you know, its allies uh, is that Assad steps down, uh, Iranian ties are severed or at least very weakened, uh, Hezbollah is excommunicated, Syria accepts federalization and uh, uh, among other things. So this is what the U.S. hopes to achieve by running these negotiations. And I think, you know, in first just I would like to make this point because I forgot to make it earlier. Um, Syria came up with a, the Syrian delegation proposed a communique where everybody would agree that terrorism should be fought and is is a threat against Syria. And not, neither the US, neither Kerry, nor Robert Ford, nor the Syrian National Council agreed to this communique condemning terrorism, which, as you said, you know, yourself, it, it, there could be PR victories here. Um, what can we hope to achieve from the next round? I'd say the, the media part of it is not going to be as important. I... I assume they're going to. I I always I'm a bit dubious about such negotiations as well because I assume that such negotiations are happening behind the scenes, perpetually if it's real diplomacy. So they don't really need to meet in a room to to get it done. Um, but I I can see what the U.S.'s goal in this is, but I I I can't quite see apart from the media what Syria's goal would be in this. 
Well, I, I echo that. Again, I, I don't quite understand what they're hoping to achieve. Well, I understand what they would like to achieve. Obviously, they would like to achieve that type of settlement you were talking about earlier with with uh, perhaps accepting some of these these people into the government, but with uh, within the framework of the current constitution. But I just don't see a through line by which they'll be able to get that through. And unfortunately, there's another narrative that's creeping in now with this uh, agreement on the, the chemical weapons uh, stockpile. And, uh, well, we can take it from propaganda mouthpiece number one, USA Today, uh, Syria holding on to chemical weapons, question mark. And apparently uh, Syria is going to miss this second deadline to turn over its chemical weapons. And, and Russia is trying to calm things down by saying, don't worry, the, the shipment will be made by March and, and all of this. But, uh, but of course, all of this brouhaha is swirling around as these talks are happening. So yet another possible um, soft spot on which to to try to paint that, uh, again, that PR victory for the, the NATO-Israeli side as, oh, you know, look at Assad and look at how he's dragging his heels on the chemical weapons. It's He's reneging. So again, unfortunately, a lot of pit potholes and, and pitfalls, uh, potential pitfalls along this road towards peace, if that's even possible. Um, let's talk a little bit about that chemical weapons issue, because I know you have some strong opinions on that and even the uh, existence of this uh, this agreement to get rid of Syrian chemical weapons. Certainly. Um before I get deeply into that, which I, I will, I just wanted to make the point now that I, I recall what Syria might also hope to achieve is to get the Syrian National Coalition and wh- whatever influence it has over the insurgents to have a unity with the army. So anyone, any of the uh, rebels that the Syrian National Coalition control become united with the army to fight al-Qaeda or any other extremist group. Ergo, uh, any rebel group that falls outside of that would then therefore be directly in opposition to um, Syria's national interests as per Geneva. So this is also uh, Syria's end game, Syria's piece of on the chessboard. But on to the chemical weapons... Um, I, of course, totally disagree with Syria giving up its chemical weapons. I think that um, it was clear to me from the start, before the the U.S. actually started saying that we're going to attack Syria, before Kerry uh, came and said we are sure that Assad did it, that the chemical weapons attack was a reason was just to cause his belly to disarm Syria, and a war would not result out of this. Um, I, I said it publicly that it would be unlikely. And however, the way it played out was that it, it looked as though they were going to do it. They were going to pull off this crazy thing that would start World War Three. that they would do this stuff. And I think it's kind of like a game of chicken, who's going to step down first? And Syria lost that game uh, by accepting to give up its chemical weapons, which in the past we have seen what happened to other world leaders who have given up their weapons of mass destruction, uh, like such as Saddam and Gaddafi. You know, Saddam's country was put through sanctions, slowly disarmed, and then in the end uh, it was attacked. And the same thing happened with Gaddafi three years after he gave up his Actually, he gave it up in 2004, so uh, nine years perhaps after he gave up his chemical weapons, his country was attacked. So when I hear uh, them talk about how Syria is dragging its feet and it's not meeting deadlines, 
I feel as though they're saying, you know, we have a we have a, a, a deadline for when we're going to attack you, and you better, you know, stick to that deadline because we have you know, meetings and wars to start. So um, I think in the first place, though, the deadline was unrealistic for the sole purpose of this kind of media. And many analysts were saying Syria has so much chemical weapons, there is no way that they would finish this armament in mid-2014, which is what supposedly is the deadline. Well, I, I certainly hear you on this, and this is another part where I think idealism meets the the, ru- the real the rubber meets the road, as it were, when it comes to actual geopolitics. Because I, I understand exactly what you're saying, and you're exactly right. I mean, Saddam did go along with the the, the inspection regime, and the inspectors ended up saying, "Well, yeah, they, they they have been destroyed. There are no weapons," and then they attacked anyways. So it certainly is absolutely no no reassurance whatsoever that this this war will be averted simply because. Uh, they comply with this. But then, of course, that hits my idealism of being completely and utterly anti-war uh, to the to the core and not believing that chemical weapons should exist at all. I, I guess mm. I wish we could all uh, disarm all sides equi- equally at the same time. But of course, uh, the U.S. will never renege on its various uh, weapons of mass destruction, including the ones that uh, it doesn't even admit that it has. So I, I certainly see where this is a geopolitical problem, but of course now again this is playing into that bigger narrative of uh, of what's going to happen with the peace talks, and this is just another I think leverage point um, to to be used against Assad. Um, let's switch to another interesting development because earlier you were talking about the um, the, the 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 quest to unite the the various opposition in Syria into one group that can be at least talked to. Um, for diplomatic purposes, but um, we see perhaps the the opposite taking place. With uh, now Al Qaeda has just come out to disavow um, ISIS, the, the Islamic State in Iraq and, and Levant, and uh, and other cracks and fissures. Um, with a lot of uh, the Syrian opposition groups basically splintering off from the ones that are negotiating in Geneva in the first place. So. Um, perhaps having the exact opposite effect. And uh, recently you put up a video explaining um, the Assad backs Al-Qaeda myth. Let's talk about that because that seems to me just so insane that uh, that that could be proposed that I don't understand how anyone could fall for it unless they really haven't been paying attention at all. Well, you know, what you said about Syria, about everybody giving up WMDs, it's interesting because... When Assad was asked for his chemical weapons in 2004, along with Gaddafi, his suggestion was the entire Middle East be rid of WMDs, which, you know, of course, the U.S. rejected. So just speaking to what you said there. Also, um, this this narrative now, this new narrative that Assad is the one who's controlling ISIS and moving it against the FSA and leading it to attack its its allies, basically. Um, and the other part of it being, you know, uh, that Assad at least influences them. Basically, if you recall over the last 10 years or more, people have been openly saying that Al-Qaeda is controlled by the CIA. The CIA created Al-Qaeda in the 80s, they exploit its presence to attack countries. They exploit its presence as a, as a puppet army, as they did in, in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union, as they did now in Syria, as they did in Libya. So um, it's basically been a very exploitable force for the United States uh, government. So the, that narrative has now been 
180% flipped around and put put as though Assad is the one who has been creating Al-Qaeda and, and, and promoting it and, and making it powerful while pretending to be fighting it. Which is very interesting because whilst the media will not talk about what it has been clearly a, a, a symbiotic relationship between the U.S. government and Al Qaeda for the last ten years, they will—they've been calling such talk conspiracy theory. They're more than happy to discuss the the idea that Assad secretly backs Al Qaeda in Syria um, without any evidence whatsoever. And here's the the interesting part is you know just a few months ago, three months or so, the FSA were not not at war with ISIS. They were in fact fighting alongside ISIS in Aleppo. And one of the FSA commanders who is part of, not just the FSA, but part of the SMC, which is more the, the, the generals and commanders of the FSA, which the US directly backs, was seen on video with ISIS, shaking their hand and congratulating them and thanking them for a suicide bombing attack they conducted against Meng Air Base in Aleppo. So um, now suddenly that ISIS is no longer beneficial to them, suddenly it's become convenient to claim that in fact it's, it was Assad who promoted them. Even though it's been the SNC and the FSA that have been appearing on numerous Arab satellite channels welcoming Mujahideen and jihadists into Syria and begging for their help in, in this war against uh, what they call the infidel Bashar al-Assad. So um, the, the hypocrisy of it is mind-boggling, especially since a lot of the mainstream media is coming out with headlines such as moderate rebels fight al-Qaeda. And what they seem to be ignoring completely is that there are two factions of al-Qaeda in Syria, Jabhat al-Nusra and ISIS. And the FSA is completely, and what is now known as the Islamic Front, which is the new name for the FSA that they've taken up, is completely in bed with and allied with Jabhat al-Nusra. And that, they are both fighting ISIS. So in effect, it is Al-Qaeda versus Al-Qaeda. It's not um, moderate rebels versus Al-Qaeda. And it's interesting also that they use the word moderate, because moderate relative to what? They don't use the word secular either. It's just, it's a manipulation of language. Moderate relative to Al-Qaeda is still extreme. Right. Well, uh, and again, just part of this evolving narrative. Now, Al-Qaeda is officially dis disowning or dis denouncing ISIS. So uh, so make of that what you will. But I, I certainly see the point. I mean, these are the uh, the extreme um, uh, jihadists that are there and uh, and they're trying to Put, paint them as the the ones that are opposed to the moderate rebels, the FSA, the SNC, the uh, the whatever they're going to be called next week, um, the Islamic Front. Just uh, just uh, part of this revolving game of of uh, kind of uh, musical chairs that's going on right now with uh, the various opposition groups, and I think it's it's ridiculous. But just on that note of conspiracy theories that you brought up, I mean, it's I think it's interesting that uh, that on certain issues, like for example, if you say that 9/11 was an attack that was sponsored and, and aided by people within uh, the the U.S. government, um, the is the official media will pretend to not have any clue what you're talking about. Why would the government attack? 
America itself. And yet, um, just a year or two ago, when there were some uh, car bombs going off in the heart of Damascus, I saw on uh, the usual suspects, the Fox News and the like, they were saying, oh, well, this, this is probably Assad attacking himself to justify the crackdown that's going on. So they're perfectly fine to use conspiracy theories like that when it's uh, against one of their enemies, but not when it uh, pertains to, to themselves. And of course, uh, Probably the most sickening example of that was the uh, the attack in Gouda last year, which a recent MIT report, actually, for those who don't know, a recent MIT report came out and concluded that uh, the uh, the U.S. intelligence on that Gouda attack was completely wrong and that the weapons could not possibly have come from uh, Assad's uh, territory, from, from Syrian government territory, as the U.S. claimed. So I'll put a link in that to that in the show notes as well. All right, um, we've touched on a lot, and obviously this is developing. There's going to be another round of negotiations. There's going to be a lot more happening. But is there any other points that you'd like to touch on before we leave things for tonight? Um, well, I would just want to say, you know, Zawahiri disowning ISIS as saying it's not part of Al-Qaeda. It's going to be interesting now what the headline will be because it's not going to be FSA versus Al-Qaeda anymore. Um, I think, you, you know... It's interesting also because ISIS seems to be perhaps no longer beneficial in many ways to to the to US agenda inside Syria. So perhaps that's one of the reasons they were disowned. But um, with Ghouta, you know, with the MIT report, I just wanted to mention the uh, media blackout against one story which said that the attack was committed by the Saudi uh, Bandar Bush, his name is, or, um, or just his last name is Bandar, but Bandar Bush is his nickname. And it was conducted by Dale Gavlak, which is an AP journalist. And she was under so much pressure that in spite of um, myself giving RT her number, contacting her and various journalists contacting her, she had to disavow herself from the article that she helped write about Ghouta being uh, something that a false flag of Saudi Arabia. So um, this is very interesting. That's right. And and for people who don't know about that, I interviewed Sharmin Narwani at the time. We talked a little bit about that. And I had a uh, an eye-opener report called Bandar Bush and the Syrian Subversion all about that. So yeah, a lot of detail there. And again, it is interesting to see the way journalists can basically have their career threatened and then back away from a story that they helped write. Um, but again, just a sign of what, what happens when all of this pressure is brought to people who dare to try to speak the truth. Absolutely. And of course, Bandar Bush, um, his nickname comes from the fact that he is intimately related to the Bush family and uh, has been for decades. So I think that's a sign of the type of power that he has. And interestingly enough, he was uh, apparently threatening Putin in a a secret meeting that they had back last summer uh, uh, over uh, Syria and trying to threaten Putin to say, if you don't back off and let us invade Syria, then you're going to have some trouble at the Olympics. And here we are. The Olympics are right around the corner, and we've seen those recent bombings in uh, in uh, Vladivostok and other places. So, I'm sorry, Volgograd. Uh, what am I talking about? Anyway, um, it's getting late at night here, so I think I'm going to have to wrap up this conversation. <laughs> but anything else that you again that you want to bring to the table? Um, well, I, I've used up a lot of your time, and if I go on to start talking about what's going on in Ukraine, as you mentioned, with with Russian pressure, and we'd be here for a very long time. So but it just... is important, and it does all relate. So why don't we continue this conversation? Um, we'll 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 pick things up in a week or two um, once these negotiations are back on, and and hopefully we can uh, continue this conversation and pick up the thread from there. If that's okay with you, 
My pleasure. Excellent. All right. Once again, uh, at Partisan Girl on Twitter and Syrian Girl Partisan on YouTube. Uh, once again, Mimi, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, James.